Well, Grace Life, it's my privilege to be here with you this morning to open God's Word. And as we're nearing the end of this series in the Pentateuch, I'm very excited to consider with you a text found in the final book of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy. And this is an incredible book, and I'm very excited to look with you at chapter 10 in a moment. And I want to mention Thanksgiving has just passed. So in keeping with the Thanksgiving spirit, or better yet, in obedience to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, I'd love to publicly express my gratitude for the opportunity to specifically, for specifically two reasons. First, I'm grateful for the privilege to preach God's word in a pulpit that has had such an immense impact on me because of the faithful men who have stood behind it and currently stand behind it. And my hope this morning is I'll faithfully preach God's word to you in a similar manner. And second, I am thankful for the privilege to minister to you. It's been about six years since my family and I have moved here to Grace Community Church. And I can honestly say that we have been benefited by our relationships with you guys as much as we have from the preaching ministry. Many of you have had an immense and lasting impact on me, on my wife, Elena, and on our six children. So we thank you so much for that. Now, some of you may not know that prior to me coming to seminary, I had the privilege of serving in the United States Army for almost nine years. And one of the things that stood out to me in the army was its commitment to training. I wonder how many of you have the same kinds of preconceptions about the army training that I did prior to enlisting. When I thought about army training, what stood out to me most was the fear of the physical stress that I would undergo in basic training. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying physical training isn't a large part of Army life, but I was surprised to learn that the Army placed an even higher value on the mental strengthening of its soldiers. Even a large part of the physical training in the Army was designed to prepare us for combat. And as I progressed in my career from basic training through the different leadership schools, This commitment to mental conditioning became more and more apparent as I had to memorize different creeds, to consider different values related to my different evolving jobs and responsibilities. But no good art organization can succeed without possessing a singular mission statement and a set of core values that stand above all other ideals. A set of principles that are foundational upon which all other creeds and values are built. And like any good organization, the army also has a fundamental single creed called the soldier's creed. This creed embodies all that the soldier is to be at the most fundamental level. Some key phrases in this creed speak of a soldier's task to serve the people of the United States to place the mission first, to persevere in all situations, to be physically fit, to be excellent and professional, never to leave a fallen comrade, to guard the American way of life. 
And these tasks highlighted the mission and conduct of a soldier. But there is something even more fundamental within this creed. The third line says this, I will serve the people of the United States and live the army values. These seven army values are the most foundational thing to what it means to be a soldier. I'll list them off for you. They are loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Let me show you briefly how these seven values uphold the key principles that I just listed in this creed. For example, it is loyalty that motivates a soldier never to leave a fallen comrade on the battlefield. It is selfless service that motivates a soldier to serve the people of the United States above his own life. It is duty that motivates a soldier to always place the mission first. Without the army values, the soldier has no governing set of principles to help him accomplish the mission in the proper manner. And if the army works so hard to get its soldiers to understand these seven army values in the fight against terrorism, how much more should we work as Christians to understand the most primary values that God has called us to obey? Just as the army has seven values to govern the lives of soldiers, Moses in Deuteronomy 10 gives us five commands to govern the way we live before they would live before Yahweh, their God. Leading up to our text, Israel had just been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are about to enter the promised land. And as they prepare to do so, Moses reminds them of how they are to live in light of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, their God. When Israel enters the promised land, they will be tempted to take their eyes off Yahweh and to place them on prosperity and on the influence of surrounding paganism. Prosperity and paganism were two temptations that were prevalent in and around the promised land and Israel needed to be ready. And as Moses, and Moses had even more reason to be concerned about how Israel would respond to these temptations given Israel's track record of disobedience against their God. However, despite Israel's pattern of egregious sin against their God, Yahweh did not destroy them. And now they sit at the brink of entering the promised land, not on the basis of their goodness, but on the basis of God's goodness in choosing them despite their sinfulness. God has continually displayed faithfulness to his covenant he made with his people and preserved them and blessed them even though they were unfaithful to him. And entering into the promised land is certainly one of the greatest acts of goodness that God has given toward his people. Before Israel enters the promised land, Moses charges them with five responses to God's goodness in their lives. So this morning, Grace Life, we're going to consider five responses to God's goodness that should characterize your life. The first is fear God. The second, follow God. The third, love God. Fourth, serve God. And fifth, obey God. In Deuteronomy 10, 11, 
Moses tells Israel how tells Israel how God commanded him to go before Israel so that they may possess the promised land. And now that they're about to enter the land, Moses addresses them with five responses to God's goodness in verses 12 through 13, which will be our text this morning. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. I'm going to read our passage. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this text, I pray that you would help us Help us to glean from it the truths that we need to glean and that we would obey them, that we'd live them out. And because of our lesson of our time this morning, that we would love you more, obey you more, and that some would even come to know you. In Christ's name, amen. Before getting into these five responses, we cannot miss the covenantal and personal language God uses in addressing his people. Notice the beginning of verse 12. He says, and now Israel... What does Yahweh your God require of you? First, the vocabulary that begins verse 12 is filled with the kind of language that expresses God's covenant with his people. God invokes his personal name, Yahweh, as indicated by the capital L-O-R-D, mentioned four times in these two verses. God uses this name with Israel because he has entered into covenant relationship with them where God would be their God and they would be his people. Second, we see this personal relationship because Yahweh is identified himself as Israel's God. Yahweh is not simply speaking to Israel generically as those who are part of the human race, but he is speaking to them personally as his special people. Moses does not say God is apart from his people by saying the God, nor does he speak of Yahweh as as being someone else's God by saying their God. But instead, Moses says to Israel that Yahweh is their God. Thus, it is astounding. Think about it. Yahweh is the God of of Israel. He is their God. This is a personal relationship. Grace life, this is the kind of relationship we have with God. God has graciously chosen us apart from anything we have done. Like Israel, we have graciously entered into covenant with him on the basis of his son. Do you think often about the salvation that God has graciously granted you? How often do you marvel that God would choose to look on you an unworthy sinner? And do you recall how while you were hopeless in your sinful state, he regenerated your heart so that you could embrace his son, Jesus, and enter into an eternal relationship with him? This display of God's goodness in your life, grace life, ought to cause you to respond in five specific ways. First, the goodness of God should cause you to fear Yahweh, to fear Yahweh. The fear of God should motivate you to live a holy life. The word fear can refer to terror or it can refer to dread. But in this case, when speaking of God's covenant people, 
it refers to reverential awe. This kind of fear does not allow us to be complacent, but motivates us to worship and obey God. For example, Deuteronomy 5, 29, it says this, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. You see this idea of fear and keeping the commandments. We also see this in Deuteronomy 6, 2. Deuteronomy 6, 2. That you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Again, this idea of fear and then keeping his commandments. Fearing God leads to obedience to God. Let's consider briefly how the kind of relationship we have with God affects the way we fear him. Specifically, when we're talking about us as believers or unbelievers, kind of relationship, whether believer or unbeliever affects the kind of fear we have. As the unbeliever and believer fear God, they recognize different characteristics about God. So when you think of fearing God, what we're talking about is considering who God, it, God is, and then the fear is the response to who he is. Let's, and again, we're going to look at that as a believer and an unbeliever. So first we consider the unbeliever's response to the character of God. God's justice means that he'll always punish sin. Therefore, God's justice produces terror in the unbeliever because he knows the inevitable consequence of his sin is eternal judgment. However, God's justice is not terrifying to the unbeliever if God does not also possess the power to carry out the sentence. We call this omnipotence, this power. So justice and omnipotence are both necessary in producing fear, these characteristics of God are necessary. So God will punish sin because he's just and he has the power to do so because he's omnipotent. The, the unbeliever increases furthermore in his fear when he considers that God is omniscient, that he knows everything. This means that because God knows everything, God's not going to forget. He's going to remember all that happened. He won't miss anything in the unbeliever's life. But because God is just, all-powerful, and all-knowing, he must punish sin. He has the power to carry it out because he's omnipotent, and he will never forget. He'll never overlook it because he's omniscient. This kind of fear is terror and dread for the unbeliever. But second, let's consider how we as believers respond to God and what fear looks like in our lives as we consider these same characteristics. God's justice does not produce the same kind of fear in us because God's justice has been satisfied in his son on the cross. When God poured out his wrath on his son, God's justice was completely quenched and there's no wrath left for us, for those who have trusted in Christ. And then when we consider God as all-powerful and all-knowing, we're encouraged furthermore because we recognize that God has the power to fulfill his promises. He's never going to forget his promises, never going to forget who you are in Christ. See, when you consider God's attributes, you consider his, these characteristics, 
the kind of fear we have is not terror and dread, but is a holy reverential fear that leads really to worship. And this is a wonderful display of God's goodness in our lives, is it not, Grace Life? When we as Christians think on God's justice, we don't tremble, hoping that we'll get into heaven, but rather we're filled with gratitude, adoration, with praise toward our Savior, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins so that we can go free. In these examples, both the unbeliever and the believer recognize and respond to the character of God. But it is the relationship that brings about a different kind of fear. And this reverential fear for us is similar to the kind of expression toward God that Jesus explained to his disciples in Matthew 6, 9. In Matthew 6, 9, in the disciples' prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, right? We see the same kind when Jesus said this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be set apart, to honor, to glorify God. It is only because of what Jesus did on the cross that we can even approach God, especially even as Father. And it is on this basis that we are adopted as sons on the basis of what Christ has done, giving us the right to call him father, making us children of God. And these truths are certainly an expression of God's goodness toward us as believers. And this goodness ought to produce the kind of fear in God that will cultivate worship and obedience. And since fear produces obedience, it's fitting that our next point is to follow God. Point number two. Notice the phrase, Walk in his ways, found in verse 12. Walk in his ways. Because fear of God causes the believer to walk in God's ways, it is best to take the first two points as a unit, point number one and point number two. To walk in God's ways is to order our lives so that it aligns with God's will. This is to consider the direction God would have us to go in our life and to strive to follow it. The Christian who fears God should respond by giving their life, by living their life to follow God's will. Walk has to do with the way we live our lives. When we walk in God's ways, we are living according to his ways. Since we are walking in God's ways, we will briefly consider the word ways. This word's basic meaning speaks of setting one's foot on territory or objects. Deuteronomy uses this word often, speaking of taking the possession of the land. But in our text, this word is related to God's ways. And since God is spirit, he has no physical ways to walk on, but he does have a will, and it is this will that we ought to long to follow in all the areas of our life. Let me just ask you this morning, Grace Life, how are you doing? How are you doing on striving to follow God's will in all the different areas of your life? Do you strive to walk in all God's ways? Or are there certain areas where you would not allow yourself even to consider what God would have you to do? Maybe because you might have to give it up. Are there certain hobbies that consume you so extensively and you know in your conscience that you ought to cut back or cut it out altogether? Or maybe some of you, for various reasons, 
neglect family for something useless and profitable. Or for others, this neglect, it might come from good things, from things like work and school and studying the Bible and even ministry. Or if you don't neglect your family for those reasons, maybe you neglect God in prayer, in Bible study, etc. Brothers and sisters, if you would consider the goodness of Yahweh in your life, you would respond in reverent fear that would produce a heart that longs to conform every area of your life to the will of God. And what more can we do after all since he has blessed us with so many good things in his son, Jesus Christ? As we consider God's goodness toward his people, it is important to note that Deuteronomy is a book that demonstrates God's covenant with his people. We see God's covenant faithfulness toward his people who constantly sin against him. They don't deserve anything from God, and yet because God's faithfulness to his covenant to bless and keep them, he doesn't destroy them. It's astounding. And this is the fact that Moses appeals to in Deuteronomy 9, 27 and 29. In Deuteronomy 9, 27, Moses appeals to God's faithfulness to his covenant. Listen to what he says. Do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Despite their stubbornness and sinfulness, Moses knows that he can appeal to God's promises because God is always faithful to his promises. This is clearly displayed in God's covenant response toward Israel, namely his unwavering love. But in the next three points, Moses calls Israel to have the proper attitude toward God as his covenant people. Our next three points. Specifically, Moses calls Israel to love Yahweh, their God. In this relationship, Yahweh loves Israel and Israel is to love God in return. In our final three points, we will see that points four and five flow from point three. And this response is truly at the heart of what it means to be in covenant relationship with God, is it not? As Moses gives this third response to God's goodness, we cannot help but hear the echo of the Shema, that famous section in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, just a few chapters earlier, when Moses says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here, in verse 5, Israel's commanded to love God. And not only to love God mostly, but to love him with every fiber of their being. They must love him with their, all their heart, soul, and might. Now, we live in a time, don't we, when love is viewed only as an emotion 
like some kind of fluctuating internal buzz that you feel when you find that special someone on eHarmony or in life. Disney's the master at producing these kinds of movies where the mission of the Disney princess is to find her true love, to just sense that internal buzz and connection. But when shallow fictional productions and the world refer to love as a feeling, they are picking up on part of what love is. For example, natural affection between a man and a woman is certainly connected to love, and God has designed it this way. If I told my wife that our anniversary dinner is on the basis of my duty as a husband and not because I have strong affections toward her, it's not going to go so well. A man or a woman might find something genuinely attractive in a person of the opposite sex, and certainly love would include sincere affection. But love also includes commitment. It includes the kind of commitment that acts selflessly in the best interest of another. We see this in Jesus' words when he said in John 15, 12 through 13. John 15, 12 through 13, this is what he said. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This passage does not exclude the emotional element of love. It does not exclude true affection for the friend for whom one lays down his life. But this passage clearly and explicitly teaches that love acts. The one who loves his friend lays down his life to benefit him. And this is what Jesus did for his people. But there's a big difference between us and God. The difference is that we might find something lovely in another person, something worthy of our affection, but God never finds anything lovely in us worthy of his saving love. Sure, we're made in the image of God, so there is a sense in which God's love, God loves the image of God in us, but in this case, God is loving his image reflected in us but God is not drawn toward anything in us that is not a direct reflection of himself in us. This principle that God loved us when we were unlovable, we find this also in Deuteronomy, in the very book that we're in. In anticipation of God fulfilling his promise to give Israel victory over the nations dwelling in the promised land, Moses warned them not to be proud. Moses warned the Israelites not to think too highly of themselves. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5. He says this, Do not say in your hearts, after Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you catch the warning? God tells Israel not to connect God's act 
of driving the nations out with their righteousness. In fact, God says that it is not because of their righteousness, but because of the wickedness of the nations. God is driving these nations out for his own sake so that his people can be holy and separate from the other nations when they enter the land. But he also says at the end that God drove them out for a second reason. He drove them out to confirm the word that he has sworn to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise. You see, Grace Life, one thing we must be crystal clear on is that God did not love Israel because of anything in them, and he does not love us because of anything in us. So when we say that the greatest act of love is when Jesus laid down his life for his sheep, we must not think he did so because there is the faintest hint of goodness that merited this saving love. We have none of that in us. And Romans 5, 6 through 8, bears this out beautifully. Listen to what Paul says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. People hardly die for a righteous person, not even a good person, but we were the worst sinners, and yet he died. Nothing good in us. Christ died for us when we were unlovable. God loved us when there was nothing attractive in us. However, this is not true about the way we love God. We may have been unlovable to God because of our sinfulness, but God is immeasurably glorious because of who he is. And because of God's glory, he is attractive beyond measure. Our love should be expressed in the action of obedience, but it should also be expressed from the heart because God is delightful. David understood this in Psalm 37, 4. He said this, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What is the lesson for us here, Grace Life, in Psalm 37, 4? God is not saying that if we delight ourselves in Yahweh, that he will give us something other than himself, like some kind of better gift. No, there's nothing better than God. If we delight ourselves in God, he will give us more joy in himself. This is what it means for us to be Christians. It means, it means that we love God with all of our heart, soul, and might. And isn't this the very thing that Moses and our passage is instructing Israel to do? To love God with all that they are. But what is the essence of our love for God? And this brings us to the second link in this triple chain of responses to God's goodness, namely to serve God. Point number four is to serve God. Listen to what it says. He says, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Interestingly, 
Serving God has two of the three elements listed in the Shema. I don't know if you caught that. But they are not connected to the word love as it is in the Shema. But rather they are connected to the word serve. In the Shema, Moses says that Israel is to love God with all their heart, soul, and might. But here in Deuteronomy 10, 12, the first two modifiers are applied to serving God, not loving God. And the reason for this is because of the relationship between loving and serving. When serving is directed toward a thing or a human, it is often referring to something not pleasurable or delightful. It resembles a dissatisfying, difficult kind of bondage to a master. We can relate serving with slavery because the one you serve is your master. And this is similar to what we saw in what we see in Exodus 1:13 when it says of the Egyptians that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. That was not a pleasant master. That was a kind of bondage and misery. This kind of serving or slavery, it is detestable, but serving God is different. Serving God is delightful. It is joyful to serve God. Because Deuteronomy 10 is referring to serving Yahweh, it refers actually to worship, this idea of serving. To serve God is to worship Him. And this is where love connects with serving or worship. If we talk about the emotional side of love, we could connect that part of loving God as delighting in Him. And if I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Grace Life, but to delight in God, it really is the heart of worship. To delight in God is really the heart of worship. To worship God is to enjoy Him for all that He is. It is to magnify Him above all other things. It means to set aside service to idols to serve the true God. This is the essence of worship. And worship is part of love because delighting in God is part of love. It is no wonder that Jesus said, what he did about love in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus answered the lawyer Pharisee, and you, you remember what he said. He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. After quoting the Shema, Jesus then lists the second commandment without prompting. He didn't ask for it. And the second commandment is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus makes a stunning claim. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying what Deuteronomy is saying. The heart of all the commands found in the Pentateuch is not about horrible rules and regulations that bring about misery and weariness in the lives of his people. Rather, these commands are to be viewed in an entirely different way. The rules and regulations in the Pentateuch are designed so that God's people who are sinful can enjoy fellowship with their holy God. These commands regulate the covenant relationship between God and his people so that they can worship and obey Yahweh. And Moses gives the fifth response to God's goodness, to obey God. We just learned that worship flows out of love, but so does obedience. And these two parts are essential to understanding biblical love. 
That is why the last three points are connected as one unit. So if point three is about love, points four and five are different aspects of love. Point four speaks about the affectional side of love and point five speaks about the obedience side. Listen to what it says. Moses says, to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. When we say that walking with God is living according to his will, as we did in point two, you may have noticed that walking according to God's will sounds a lot like obedience, what we're looking at here in point five. And you'd be correct. But there is a slightly different focus here on this fifth point. Walking according to God's will is broader and more general, whereas keeping the commandments and statutes of Yahweh is more specific and legal. Commandments And statutes emphasize God's word. Just prior to Deuteronomy 10, Moses has recounted Israel's history. And one of the events he chronicled was the golden calf idolatry followed, which followed the giving of the law on stone tablets. The giving of the law on the tablets is the general meaning of this word statutes. God commands Israel to obey his law. And as we learned earlier, obeying God's law is part of love. In fact, if a person loves God affectionately, if they worship God, then they will be delighted to obey his commands. Think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.97. He said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is the heart of one who truly loves God. They love God for who he is and they strive to obey him in all that they do. The commands of God are not a burden to his people. We come to love God. We want to obey him. But there's a big problem. There's a big problem, Grace Life. In our ability as sinners in humanity to obey God, and this problem is evident throughout Deuteronomy, really throughout the scripture, especially the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28 is very helpful here in, in illustrating this point. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28. It says this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of, the, of Yahweh your God which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Blessing, if you obey. Curse, if you do not obey. That is a risky situation given our sinful nature. Because we are born with a sin nature, we're slaves to sin. This means that we're incapable of obeying God. Even when our actions seem to obey him, we still sin because we don't do them by faith. And I'm talking about as an unbeliever here. We are hopelessly trapped in bondage of our own sin. And thus, the only outcome for this, according to Deuteronomy 11.28, is cursing. We need what every Israelite needed. We need help from the same place that Israel should have sought it. 
We need help from the seed of the woman spoken of in Genesis 3.15. We need help from the same place that Israel was to look. The one whom Israel hoped for, we can hope for now. We look to Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who established the new covenant. The new covenant that is unlike the old covenant. The new covenant is not a covenant made with human hands and written on tablets of stone as Moses did at Sinai. We need a better promise as grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a covenant instituted by the blood of Jesus Christ. The condition of the law was obedience. And because sin, because of sin, Israel was never able to fulfill this condition. So God promised to give them new hearts, to cause them to obey him. And we are so sinful that our only hope is that God give us new hearts. And draws your mind to Ezekiel 36, doesn't it? Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. Listen to what Ezekiel says here. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. New hearts and God-empowered obedience is a promise that is yet to be fulfilled to corporate Israel, but it is a reality for us today. What national Israel waits for in the future we can possess today in the church age. As Christians, we have hearts that have been changed. We have a new nature that now hates sin and loves Christ. When we consider God's justice and omnipotence, we do not fear as when we were unbelievers, but we rejoice because we know that Christ died, satisfying God's justice so that it will never touch us. Christ drank every drop of God's wrath on our behalf. Can you rejoice with me this morning, Grace Life, as we consider this reality? That we have been reconciled to a holy God on the basis of Christ who died for our sin and lived for our righteousness? With sin taken out of the way and with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we have unshakable hope that we will one day be with our God, freed from the shackles of sin to enjoy him forever. And we celebrate this reality. But there are some, some of you here this morning who are far off from God. Some of you have never known the joy of forgiveness. Some of you have never known what it is to have your eyes open to delight in Christ. And you don't know what it means to love, to obey God. And I plead with you this morning to turn from your sin. You must forsake all attempts to gain righteousness through good deeds. You must take all those self-righteous attempts and crush them under your knees as you bow to Christ as Lord and Savior, trusting in him alone. If you try to obey the commands of God to live as Deuteronomy offers, 
you will perish in your sins. But if you trust in the obedience of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, you too can enter into eternal relationship with God, where God will be your treasure forever, where you will be with the Lord Jesus for eternity. And what could be better than that? What could be better than having a saving relationship with God? What could be better than being loved by and loving the God of the tr- the God, the triune God of the universe forever. Nothing can be better than that. No worldly thing can possibly be better. And if you don't believe that, and you're sitting here this morning, that's only because your eyes haven't been opened. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan blinds your eyes, so you can't see something. He doesn't want you to see his glory, God's glory, the glory of Christ specifically. Because if you see the glory of Christ, you will be compelled to go to him. So he's got to blind your eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God opens those eyes. And if God opens those eyes, you will behold Christ. And so we put Christ before you this morning, hoping that you would see who he is and you would come to him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to be here, to consider your word, to consider that you, the infinite God of the universe, would condescend to make yourself known to us, and not only to make yourself known to us, but so that we might be able to enjoy you forever, to know specifically who you are, to know what you love, to know what you hate, to align ourselves with your will. And we want to be those who do fear you, who do bring you glory in the way that we live, who love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and that you would help us Help us to do this well and to be testimonies for you. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.